Hello and welcome to The Silver King's War. I'm Michael Sievers, the writer, producer, and creator of this podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Today we continue in the final play of the trilogy of plays called The Silverfields of Northbrook. And this play is titled The Sievers. We are in scene four, which is called Winter Wonders. It's early winter in 1960. Greg Road was a classic cul-de-sac, a small, shrubby circle, grass and a red fire hydrant, nothing special. But how the kids of that cul-de-sac loved it. They rode bicycles with impunity, since cars had no escape. The neighbors navigated winter with snow tires, chains, window scrapers, wide blades, shovels, and newly designed Sears power snowblowers. Think of a lawnmower turned on its edge. The adults drove the blowers while their kids went door to door, shovels on shoulders. The Silverfields and Levy's shared a noisy, powerful blower that ran as a slender, single blade over concrete and asphalt. Stanley and Cal Levy, adorned in winter gear, reveled in their marvelous adult toy. As this scene opens on a winter morning, the stage is stark. The early morning light is coming up, and there's quite a bit of snow in front of the Silverfields driveway. Northbrook East is shrouded in heavy snow, and a village dump truck is pushing a large plow blade as it rumbled through and around Greg Road. Public Works was clearing quiet streets. As we view the scene, this without any real dialogue, our hero, Stanley, watches the plow pitch snow into piles and he noticed a sizable stack blocking the long Silverfields driveway. And this was not acceptable. Soon, a village crew stopped at 605 Greg Road. Four men, shovel-ready, attacked the driveway block drift. Stanley had called City Hall, demanding a remedy. His silver sedan had a trunk full of Bailey's Beauty Supply samples, and he had a full schedule of sales calls. As Stanley closes his trunk, his sedan and the piles of snow switch to dark, and a single light appears over the front of the stage, and Michael, Stanley's son, appears to read. He has some research about the history of snowplows, and he begins. The first snowplows were horse-drawn wedge plows made of wood. The earliest reference found by the Oxford English Dictionary was written in 1792 in a description of New Hampshire. And it read, When a deep snow has obstructed the roads, they are in some places opened by an instrument called a snowplow. It is made of planks in a triangular form with two sideboards to turn the snow out of either hand. Michael continues, With the advent of rail travel and later the automobile, 
a number of inventors worked to improve existing snowplows. In the U.S., the snow clearer is said to have been patented as early as the 1840s for the railroads. The first snowplow ever built specifically for use with motor equipment was in 1913. It was manufactured by Good Roads Machinery in Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, and was designed to meet the requirements outlined by engineers of the New York City Street Cleaning Bureau. Good Roads is unofficially credited as the originator of the modern snowplow, though their horse-drawn steel blade road graders were used to clear roads of snow as early as the company's founding in 1878 called the American Road Machinery. Good Roads patented the first four-wheel grader in 1889, making it the first pull grading apparatus patented in the U.S. Unlike most early snowplow manufacturers, Good Roads continues to manufacture snow removal equipment today under the name of Good Roads Godwin, now in Dunn, North Carolina. In the early 1920s, Good Roads often advertised in the American City magazine that Three out of every four snowplows in use throughout the United States are Good Roads champions. By the mid-1920s, Good Roads was manufacturing snowplows of shapes and sizes for use on a variety of motorized equipment, and other snowplow manufacturers began to follow their trends with motorized plows that were proven more efficient than other methods of snow removal. Carl Frink of Clayton, New York, was also an early manufacturer of truck-mounted snowplows. His company, Frink Snowplows, and now known as Frink America, was founded by some accounts as early as 1920. For the winter of 1919, Carl Frink was the owner of a tire and machine shop in Clayton, and manufactured and equipped a bus with a steel V-blade snowplow for Fred Daly's Clayton to Watertown bus line. In 1920, Frink equipped a Lynn half-truck with a snowplow and side blades for F.W. Carpenter's Black River bus lines, and thus began his snowplow business. The Lynn Company immediately started to equip their half-tracks with snowplow and heavily promoted their superior traction. They dominated the eastern market until the 1930s when the half-tracks were supplanted by the much faster four-wheel drive trucks. In 1923, the year that Stanley Silverfield was born, the brothers Hans and Evan Overassen of Norway constructed an early snowplow for use on cars, and this proved to be the start of a tradition in snow-clearing equipment for roads, railways, and airports, as well as the foundation for their company of Overassen Snow Removal Systems. As Michael completes the sharing of his research, the single light on the stage above him, goes dark. And there's a few moments of darkness, and then the light appears again. And Michael stands beneath it to read a letter that he wrote to 
the former neighbors of the Silverfields in Chicago, the Stearns. And he begins, Dear Aunt Lucille and Uncle Lester, Dad blew his top this morning. We had a serious snowstorm, and the plows hit Greg Road and blocked our driveway. Oh, man, I heard Dad on the phone. He was polite and firm and very clear that the village employees should return to clear the driveway. And they did. That was amazing. I was impressed. And now, of course, we get snow days, and Cindy's building a snowman in the front yard as I look upon her through the windows in the living room and write to you. I'm going to get dressed and join her out there. She's having a ball. Stay warm and know that we miss you. I love you, Michael. And as the stage light dims on this scene called Winter Wonders in the final play of the trilogy, and this play is called The Seavers, I want to share a very fresh Greg Road story with you. In late October 2023, three Wisconsin Badger roomies shared a reunion to celebrate their 75th birthdays. Joe Weigler, Roger Sharp, and I convened in Pittsburgh, PA, the home of Joe and his wife, Bernadette Weigler. We shared days and nights of stories and food and good times, highlighted by a Pittsburgh Steeler game. The Steelers lost, but the tailgate adventure of that day was memorable. After the weekend, Roger Sharp and I flew to Chicago so that I could spend a few days with Roger and his wife, Ellen, who live in Arlington Heights. On a snowy, cold Halloween day, Roger and I, fortified by corned beef sandwiches from Max and Benny's on Waukegan Road in Northbrook, drove to Greg Road. Stepping from the car, bundled against the cold, Roger and I talked about that house, and he took photos of me in front of it. As we were leaving, a young man who lived next door in the Krause's former home waved at us and said hello and asked, could he help us? And Roger shouted to him, this is the house where he grew up as he pointed to me. The next morning, Roger and I settled into his car and pointed it north to Madison, Wisconsin. We planned to spend the day checking our old haunts from campus days and seeing what pinball machines remained in the city where we met as freshmen in 1966. We stopped at the plaza for a famous plaza burger lunch, and they had two machines. Roger played one, and there we talked about our visit in Pittsburgh to the Pinball Perfection Museum, where, of course, the guys knew him and were thrilled to see him visit and had pulled from their vast inventory of pinball machines their special machine called Sharpshooter, which was named for Roger. 
the man who designed and built the machine. From the plaza, we motored over to Hancock Street, where we stopped to walk around our old apartment building, a two-story dump just behind the Capitol, wedged near James Madison Park and Lake Mendota. From there, it was back to campus, where we searched high and low for other machines. We started at the Union, the famed Union at the edge of Lake Mendota, which in our day had a vast game room filled with pinball machines. No luck there. We moved on to the KK, the college club bar nearby, and then to the famed Broadhouse and on to a bar that had been the famed pub where we met and dangled beers and burgers over pinball machines. Nothing there either. And so it was that Roger and I, over five stops, found two pinball machines. Before leaving campus, we stopped for a cup of coffee to take the edge off a chilly day in early November. We had a good conversation about our lives as undergraduate men, living and learning, loving the days and years of campus life and being badgers. And we also talked about a new movie about Roger's life. It's called Pinball, The Man Who Saved the Game, made by the Motion Picture Institute. Of course, I am biased, but it's a lovely and loving film. A story about a friend who finds his way in the world. After our conversation, we motored to a neighborhood near Camp Randall Stadium, where our famed Badger footballers play. We stopped at the home of my cousins, Amy and Marty Fields. I would stay with them for the rest of my visit, and Roger would motor home to Arlington Heights. Roger and I hugged hard and shared our love for each other in a few quiet words as he prepared to leave for home. We talked about getting together again with Joe Weigler for another reunion and more football games. And then he was gone. Our Badger Roomies reunion at 75 was a grand success. We'll be talking about those days for the rest of our lives. And you are listening to The Silver King's War.